Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What Are You Talking About? presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. My name is Bob. I'm hanging out talking sports with my older brother, Chris, as always. This is our one year anniversary, so happy birthday to us. And in celebration of that, my brother is out in sunny California. Uh, Chris, what's going on, man? Not much. I'm just uh, recovering from a very long day of travel. Been up since 3 in the morning Eastern time. I flew out at like 7 in the morning and I landed at 8.30 in the morning. That's that whole time zone stuff. So that's fun. That's been fun to get adjusted to. But California is nice and sunny, man. It feels like summer out here. No, no snow for me this week. That's great. I'm envious. It's even snowing down here in Tennessee. So enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I picked a good week then. For you guys are yes. getting snow. It's a real good week to be in California. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. So happy birthday to us again. Uh, what a great way to celebrate our birthday the day after the Super Bowl. It's always going to be a great day to celebrate. Lots to talk about. Super Bowl Fifty happened last night. Denver Broncos ended up being the champions, being the Carolina Panthers. Chris, I know you watched the game. Uh, what, what's your general thoughts on it? Now, just to clarify, I'm in California not for the Super Bowl, uh, something else. I'm actually in Southern California, not Northern California. But my thoughts on the game were this is what happens when arguably the two best defenses in the league play. You get very little scoring. And I don't think many people thought that this would be a high-scoring affair. Uh, the over-under was, I think, only like 44, and if you took the under, you crushed that bet because it was only 24 to 10, and there was only there were two offensive touchdowns, but there was really only one offensive drive resulting in a touchdown. That was the Carolina drive. That Denver touchdown came late, and it was set up by a another Von Miller fumble that they recovered inside the 10 by a former Cleveland Brown, T.J. Ward. So when you look at this game and you look at if you watched it, like I'm sure many of your listeners did because it's arguably the biggest sporting event of the year, uh, you'll see that Cam Newton, one of the most mobile quarterbacks in the NFL, got sacked six times for 64 yards. Peyton Manning, one of the least mobile quarterbacks in the NFL, got sacked, not surprisingly, a lot, five times for 37 yards. And both quarterbacks, I think, struggled to combine for 300 yards. Cam Newton, 18 of 41, 265. Peyton Manning, 13 of 23, 141. Uh, this was all about the defenses, which one made the bigger play. And at the end of the day, the Broncos' defense got the defensive touchdown, and that ultimately was the difference in another fantastic Von Miller strip. He just came up to Ken Newton and practically like pulled the ball out of his arms. It was insane. Yeah. That was that was the play of the game, and Miller certainly deserving of winning Super Bowl MVP with two and a half sacks, two forced fumbles that led to both Bronco touchdowns. But yeah, I mean, the, this game was all about the defense and. Denver's got the score, and that's ultimately ultimately what was the difference in this game. Yeah, I think you uh, hit most of the points that I, I wanted to bring up, and I think this is a pretty simple analysis of the Super Bowl. It was Denver's defense played at an incredibly historic level. I said when we previewed the Super Bowl, if Denver could repeat what they did against Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, they're going to be in really good shape against the Carolina Panthers, and they did just that. Uh, you said six sacks against Cam Newton. 
13 quarterback hits. And then if you factor in the six rushes that Cam Newton had, most of those weren't designed. Only a couple of them were. A lot of those were scrambles. Uh, add those in, that's 19 hits. I think he only slid once. So 18 hits, I guess, from the, the Denver Broncos defense. A lot of those were vicious hits, too. They weren't these little Peyton Manning, oh, I'll go down instantly. I mean, Cam's a big guy. He's not shy of taking the hits. But I have to think that those added up. A couple of those made me wince at some time. Uh, and then when facing pressure, Cam Newton's completion percentage was 31.3%. That's just not a way to uh, to win a game. And combine that with the fact that he overthrew 10 wide receivers during the game. His wide receivers dropped some balls. Uh, the, the one interception Cam had, uh, the wide receiver technically dropped it though he was shadowed really well i'm not sure if anyone could really have caught that and that landed perfectly in the tj ward's hands but he was just he was flustered i've never seen cam newton that flustered he even when he wasn't facing pressure the the denver broncos secondary which is equally as good as the denver bronco pass rush uh they they were locking down those wide receivers uh it was just an overall dominating performance put on by wade phillips and and von miller and that denver broncos defense it was very very impressive to watch yeah and let's talk about that secondary you know akeem talib could have been the goat of this game he had some really big bonehead penalties that kept carolina's scoring drive alive that gave carolina some momentum uh but talib chris harris jr T.J. Ward, Darian Stewart, and then Bradley Roby in the nickel. Those five guys played phenomenal throughout the playoffs. Tom Brady in the AFC Championship game was completely flustered. There were times where Brady and Cam Newton in both games had, and I was counting as I watched, five to seven seconds to throw the ball, which is more than enough time. But the coverage was just so fantastic that it still led to either a rush or a sack or something along those lines where he just couldn't find anyone getting open. No one was able to get open. And so that Denver Broncos secondary was just outstanding. And, yeah, the Denver Broncos defense – was top to bottom one of the most elite units ever put together and most of the time in fact almost all of the time when the number one defense reaches the super bowl it usually wins the super bowl and so i know i picked carolina i had hyped them up big time immediately after the nfc title game but as the week went on and carolina became the favorite and denver had to hear about them being the favorite for two weeks and then you start remembering the history of top defenses in the Super Bowl. I got a little more weary of my Carolina pick. Now, I ultimately stuck with them, but I didn't think that either of these teams was going to win in a blowout. I, I started to kind of think that this game was going to be very tight, very close, decided on either a special teams or a defensive touchdown, and that's ultimately what happened. Denver made the big play. Denver got it. But, you know, let's not underscore what Carolina's defense did, too. I mean, they they played solid. They played strong. They got to Peyton Manning. Denver's offense couldn't do much. I I mean, I think Denver was like one of 13 on third downs. So all the Panthers just needed was that one extra play, and maybe they're the ones winning the Super Bowl. But they couldn't do it. Denver did. And that's pretty much the the way it went. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only good drive 
the Denver Broncos offense had was that opening drive. Other than that, I think that was the only third down conversion they had. <laughs> Other than that, they they were just three and out. Go ahead. How many times have we said that about Denver all playoffs? The only drive yeah. they had was the first one. I think we've said that in all three of their games. Yeah, absolutely. And you just look at that Denver receiving core, uh, the numbers. I mean, Manuel Sanders reliable with six receptions. Everyone else had one catch except for C.J. Anderson. He had four catches for 10 yards out of the backfield. Demarius Thomas, one catch for eight yards. Josh Norman did a fantastic job on him, and Peyton just could not get him the ball. Uh, Thomas admittedly did drop a couple of those. But um, back to that Denver Broncos secondary, all five of those guys were not on the roster. or They were they did not play for that Super Bowl just two years ago. Neither did Von Miller or DeMarcus Ware. It's pretty incredible to think – what that Denver Broncos team was two years ago playing in that Super Bowl with that offense of Noshawn Moreno, Wes Welker, Julius Thomas, Eric Decker, all guys that are off the team. And then you consider all the studs they've added on the defensive side, just a complete 180 from being a historically great offense to a historically great defense in two years. That's a pretty impressive uh, transition by led by Gary Kubiak and Wade Phillips and John Elway. They did a really good job reestablishing this Denver Broncos team and it paid off big with the Super Bowl win that I I cannot imagine a more deserving MVP than Von Miller and the way he played you know after that first touchdown I texted you and said that Von Miller is probably going to be the Broncos best offensive weapon as well and he proved just to be that I mean both of those fumbles one was a direct defensive touchdown the other one set the Broncos offense up within five yards to go to score the ball. And they ended up scoring their second touchdown. Uh, he, he just put on a clinic and he really has been putting on a clinic all playoffs. It was really impressive to see. It was also a really special Super Bowl too. You had the top two picks in the draft going head to head against one another from the 2011 draft, Cam Newton and Von Miller. And, legitimately going against each other not because that's the thing when you hype up the quarterback matchups they're not playing against each other they're playing against each other's defenses but this was a legitimate von miller versus cam newton you know the pass rushing end versus the quarterback and the pass rushing end won this one big time so i thought that was a pretty special storyline to the super bowl was not only did you have the top two over you know the top two overall picks in the draft going head to head against each other but they actually were legitimately going head to head against each other, so that was that was kind of a cool little twist. Um, but going back to what you said about Denver, when they got destroyed by Seattle, and they—that's being nice. Seattle just mopped the floor with them in that Super Bowl two years ago. They had a awakening that offense fills the seats, defense wins championships. As you said, they got rid of Eric Decker. Wes Welker, they decided not to pay those guys. No Sean Marino, their big offensive weapons. Julius Thomas, they, those are four of their five biggest weapons from that team gone. They replaced them with guys like T.J. Ward, Akeem Tlaib, who they stole from the New England Patriots. Guys like that who helped, and Demarcus Ware, who helped bring this defense from an okay unit to an elite unit. And you have to give a ton of credit to John Elway, as much as it pains me to do so as a Browns fan, but he turned this team... I mean, you have to give him all the credit in the world for recognizing the problem, and not only that, but going out and fixing it in a way, not just a minor fix. This wasn't a half measure. This was a full-blown retooling, and it paid off huge dividends this year. Uh, Because without this defense, honestly, the Broncos probably 
struggle to make the playoffs. That I mean, their offense was good enough not to lose a game, but you could see it even in the end there. Denver was scared to try to convert a third down. They're like, no, we're not going to make a mistake on offense. We're going to let our defense win this game. Yeah, and rightfully so. I mean, I've seen some some clips uh, since the game happened of all five Carolina offensive linemen literally being slid back as soon as the ball is snapped. And the, the pass rush that the Broncos brought forth last night was very impressive, and it I'm not sure if we're ever really going to see that again. It's going to be a really long time until we see it. Um, Talking about kind of an unsung hero, a guy that's going to be forgotten very quickly, talk about Coney Ely. Interception, two forced fumbles, three sacks from the Panthers' defensive line. Uh, Obviously, if the Panthers ended up winning, it was probably going to be due in part to Cam Newton leading them back, and he probably would have been Super Bowl MVP, but... You would have to make a strong case for Coney Ile and and the the plays that he made on that Panthers defensive line to to possibly be the losing team's MVP last night. That interception he made was one of the best catches I have ever seen. It was fantastic. And if he did not win MVP, I don't care if Cam Newton leads them back. That guy deserved to be MVP if Carolina had won. That catch was amazing. He was fantastic. He had one of the best games of his career, obviously. So you're right. He's certainly going to be forgotten because, you know, most of the time, if you're not a quarterback on the losing team, you generally get kind of swept up, especially Coney Ely was not a huge name coming in. But maybe this is the kind of game that kind of elevates him a little bit and he becomes a more you know, household name. I'm not saying he wasn't important on the Carolina defense because I'm sure he was. He's a fantastic player, at least from what I saw of him. But you're right. I mean, that performance is going to certainly be kind of forgotten. You want to know who else's performance is going to be forgotten as time goes on? Who's that? Peyton Manning's. And can you believe that we have (laughs) gone about 13 minutes in this podcast without legitimately talking about Peyton Manning? And the Broncos won the Super Bowl. Now, in the context of this year, it's probably not surprising. But overall, it is shocking to see the offense Denver ran was led by Peyton Manning. Because it was an offense catered more to an Alex Smith or a game manager type quarterback. And when you hear Peyton Manning, those words generally do not come into your head. Actually, they never come into your head. But this year, this playoff run, Peyton Manning did enough to win he they were playing on offense not to lose the game and that was an odd dynamic for Peyton Manning and the reason I say his performance is going to be lost in time because I think everyone is going to forget this year they're just going to remember that he won the Super Bowl and remember what a great quarterback he was and kind of forget that this year was not a typical Peyton Manning year in the least no, absolutely not. I mean, 9.9 QBR last night, that's even lower than, than Newton's QBR of 16.9. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he's going to finish the, his career with more interceptions in the Super Bowl than touchdowns, a 500 record. Uh, yeah, he, he. I think he finally realized in the playoffs that it was his job not to screw up and just ride that defense, turn out the clock, and most likely they will win. If there's an offensive MVP for the Broncos, it's clearly C.J. Anderson. He ripped off some huge runs, broke lots of tackles for 90 yards and a touchdown. Uh, basically, the only person on that offense sustaining drives was C.J. Anderson. He deserves a lot of credit. 
uh, broke tackles from Thomas Davis and Luke Keekley a couple times. Uh, th- that's always really impressive. So he deserves a lot of credit, but again, he's probably going to be overshadowed by Peyton being the quarterback. Well, and here's the thing. When you've done what Peyton Manning has done throughout his career, five MVPs, he has won a Super Bowl. He's one of a handful of quarterbacks to play or start in four Super Bowls. I mean, you get a mulligan when you don't when you sit back and let your team carry you to the title. And that's what happened. I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, bash the guy with that, but it's what happened. I mean, the, if Denver's defense isn't playing at an elite level, anyone who watched Peyton Manning this year saw clearly that he's not the same quarterback he was even two years ago when he was setting all those records and leading Denver to the high-flying offense. Now, to be fair to him, he doesn't have the same kind of weapons, but he still has Emmanuel Sanders. Demarius Thomas, C.J. Anderson, uh, you know, he has enough weapons for that offense to be really good. You look at him play, he's not the same quarterback physically that he was two, even two years ago. And the fact of the matter is they had to play this way in order to win the championship. And props to him for realizing, for putting any sort of ego or whatever he may have had aside to allow the Denver Broncos to succeed and win the Super Bowl and not make it an issue that he wasn't the focal point of the offense, that he was just playing not to lose and trusting in the defense to win the game for him. So you got to give him credit for that. But at the same time, when you've done what Peyton Manning's done throughout his career, you've earned the right to take a a lot of credit for this Super Bowl because... Quite frankly, a lot of these free agents that they attracted wouldn't have even considered Denver if Peyton Manning wasn't on the team. So let's not minimize his presence in getting these free agents here and keeping Denver in an elite contender status for the last four years during this run. They finished with the number one seed in the AFC three out of four times. Peyton Manning deserves a lot of credit overall, but if you look at the individual games and what was played this year, certainly the defense was the focal point of this team yeah absolutely and i mean he he does deserve he does deserve a fair amount of credit just by the fact that he is the starting quarterback of the super bowl so certainly i'm not going to take that away from him Um, here's a fun stat though peyton manning total playoff yardage 539 that's behind ben roethlisberger carson palmer and tom brady who played one fewer game cam newton led the league in playoff yardage this year but that's kind of crazy and he only broke the 200 mark twice against pittsburgh or once excuse me against pittsburgh 222 yards he threw for 176 against the pats and then 141 against the panthers so uh, certainly not anywhere near Peyton Manning typical numbers who could breathe on a team and get 300 yards back in the day Uh, but the fact that he got his second Super Bowl is going to solidify him in my mind in the top 10 I don't think there's any question that he is one of the 10 best quarterbacks of all time now that he has multiple championships yeah his legacy is very secure Um, you know it just reaching the fourth Super Bowl that definitely helped solidify it and then winning it obviously was a cherry on top but i don't think uh i don't think there was a make or break in terms of his legacy obviously a one in three losing record in the super bowl doesn't look good but the 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 career that he's had compared to anybody else that's that's thrown the ball in the nfl uh, he he certainly is a top 10 quarterback he was entering the game and now anybody who who doesn't like him or didn't think so i i I can't understand an argument 
to not include him in, in one of the greatest players to play for play football. Yeah, I think entering this game, he was borderline top 10. I think you could make the argument that maybe he was just outside, like 11, 12, whatever. But now that he has two titles, I don't think it's possible to exclude him, combined with his five MVPs. Yes, he has a lot of playoff shortcomings, I believe eight one-and-done, something ridiculous like that. But when you go to four Super Bowls, and I talked about this last week, who cares if you're one and three in the Super Bowl? You got two four Super Bowls. That's... It, I feel like just getting there is better than what your record is in the big game. Um, except, of course, if you're Jim Kelly, who was 0-4, that's probably a problem. But the point is, uh, you know, Peyton Manning led two different teams to two Super Bowls. That's insane. He won it with two different teams. Only quarterback to do that. Only player to win five regular season MVPs. He has multiple Super Bowls. Only 13 quarterbacks have led their team, as in started, and won th- uh, two or more Super Bowls. Those kind of metrics put him in the top ten safely. He's no longer on the bubble if some new hotshot quarterback comes and piles up some titles. I think he is safely in the top ten. I think where the debate gets interesting is, does he make the top five? Me, Probably not, but I certainly think people will put him top five. Some people will. I wouldn't, but some people will. I mean, I, I don't. I haven't compiled a list. Have, do you have a list of your top five? I have a top five. Mine's a little unorthodox, okay. but I've got Joe Montana, Tom Brady, Terry Bradshaw, Bart Starr, and Otto Graham. And my logic for that is simple. I don't think you can punish the guys before 1980 just for playing in an era that was so much more difficult to compile passing yardage. Um, When Terry Bradshaw, Bart Starr, and Otto Graham played, they were the greatest winners of their era, and they played against defenses that there was no roughing the passer before 1980. There was no illegal contact before 1980. There was encouraged destruction of wide receivers and quarterbacks back in the day. And it was in team's best interest to run the ball and control the clock that way because you set your receivers and quarterbacks up for huge punishment without those protections in place. So I don't think it's fair to punish those players who were unable to compile the big numbers that Manning and Brady and to an extent Montana, but Montana the rules hadn't changed to the extreme of Manning and Brady in the 80s. Um, I just think that so many people overlook that and kind of discredit those three guys just because they don't have as big of numbers but if you look at them within the context of their era a they were great winners b they all had mvps and c i mean as quarterbacks they were the top shelf of their time so i put i'm going to i still give them their due and keep them in my top five all right i was just curious um i i haven't thought about it maybe that's a debate for another day um this is a good segue though uh peyton manning's legacy is secure we both agree on that i think most people can agree on that uh, his his peer on the other side of the ball, Cam Newton, so is definitely building a legacy. NFL MVP this year, led the Panthers to the best regular season record. But this game definitely reinforced what a lot of critics out there thought about Cam Newton. Love it or hate it, he's going to have a really rough offseason. Just due in part to, well, two plays, two events really. Uh, that last fumble where... It's debatable whether he didn't want to dive in there to grab that ball. He seemed to kind of jump away from it when it was his turn to dive on it. And then his post-game conference, which really kind of upset me when I, when I woke up in the morning to see that he just kind of walked away. 
because I think the criticism that he gets is completely unfair and overblown. That being said, you're just putting gasoline on a fire and he had a perfect opportunity to kind of snuff some things out, but now he is going to have a, a lot of questions to answer this off season. Chris, what were your thoughts on those late, the the late game fumble and, and, and Cam Newton and what the perception is of him now? Well, first off, I think his frustration boiled to a breaking point when on a third and long, he was hit very brutally in the end zone late, probably should have been a flag was not thrown it was one of those borderline calls that i think should have gone his way and i think that's ultimately left a very sour taste in his mouth at that point the game was uh in hand and his two fumbles were well led to the two touchdowns so they were a very impactful play so you have to look at him as one of the catalysts for carolina's defeat now here's the thing i don't take it personally when athletes walk off the field in frustration in the Super Bowl or the finals or a big game and not shake hands. I'm not saying Cam Newton did it. He did not do that. He shook Peyton Manning's hand or or are very blunt in their press conferences. I know Tom Brady has done it. Even Peyton Manning has done it in the past. They have been very kind of short, quick, frustrated press conferences. It happens. These guys are human. This is you know a huge game for them there's a lot of emotion when you get there and you lose and especially not only lose but as soon as you lose you see the confetti come down and the other team celebrating that can't be easy and so i give all these guys a pass for being frustrated however when you're cam newton and you're doing the superman every time you score and you're dancing around every time something's going great and you're 15 and 1 and you're dabbing and you're having fun because that's what he says. And I have no problem with athletes having fun and doing that and showboating and things like that. But if you're going to pump your chest when things are great, you have to be prepared for that to come right back at you a hundred times harder when you lose. So in Cam Newton's case, he has got to handle himself a little bit better in that situation only because he put himself out there. If he wasn't doing all that stuff, this would not be as big of a deal. To me, it would just be another instance of a frustrated quarterback or a frustrated player losing a big game. And the other great ones have done it as well. But when when you look at Cam Newton and how he's, you know, kind of a little bit just flamboyant on the field with all the celebrations, in good times, you have to be prepared for the when the tide gets a little bit bumpy it's going to come right back in your face a thousand times worse. Yeah, I, mean, I, I instantly thought of 2010 LeBron James, mm-hmm. w- one of the most happy, jubilant per- people in sports, always dancing on the sideline, You know, goes to the heat, all this media attention, and just had one of the most awful post-game, post-NBA Finals interviews that just got totally warped and distorted. And it really is when you build up a persona that is perceived as larger than life in the good times, you have to still be larger than the moment in the bad times. And that's, that's unfair. That's completely unfair because these guys are human. These guys work incredibly long, frustrating, grueling hours to get to this moment, the biggest moment of their life. And they're expected just moments after watching it crumble in their hands to, talk about the defeat 
and you could hear in the audio and this has been brought up in some some articles but you can hear chris harris jr talking about cam newton in during that post-game interview doing another interview just in the same room so that can't help either but you know for cam newton he built himself up and, and brought the attention on him in a very unfair way you just have to be able to be above it and this is going to be a very good step learning point for him but uh yeah it, it was it was disappointing for me because i i, I think a lot of the criticism that he gets is completely distorted and blown out of proportion but you know sometimes i can't really defend him for, for what right. he did in walking away from the presser i agree that the criticism is blown out of proportion and i agree to an extent with you but i don't think it's unfair in the sense that yes when you look at other quarterbacks and other players they don't celebrate in the way cam newton does on the field when a big play happens okay cam newton Celebra- celebrates very visually. He's out there. He is having fun, and I have no problem with that. But people are going to take that personally, especially the other team. You are going to get mocked when you lose. Sean Marion used to do a lights out dance when the Chargers were fourteen and two, and the Patriots upset them. They did the lights out dance on the sideline, and the Daniel Tomlinson was really mad about it. That's what you get when you do stuff like that. The other team is going to throw it back in your face. And I don't think that it's unfair because when you do that, when you put yourself out there, when you're showboating a little bit, you have got to understand that when you lose, it is going to come back at you a thousand times worse. And you have to be prepared for that. And so if Cam Newton wasn't doing all those things on the field, he wouldn't have to face these kind of questions and this kind of standard when he loses. But because he does, and now he acts this way after a loss, people are going to perceive him as a sore loser. And that's just what's going to happen. And so I don't think it's unfair. I think he's brought some of this on himself just with the way he enjoys the game, which, again, there's nothing wrong with it. But you have to understand that when you do things like that, people are going to take it personally. Yeah, good points. Um, All right, about that fumble, should he have dough for it? Initially I said yes, but my dad, our dad, excuse me, raised a good point that he didn't die for it because I think he saw that the defender's arm was reaching for it. And I don't think, I, I think he changed his mind when he saw that. And, and maybe, my, he, my dad explained this better than me. I think he should have dove in for it just for the perception of, hey, I'm going to play every play. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you saw a noticeable hesitation. And honestly, I mean, after taking all those hits... I'd probably have some hesitation, too. I mean, again, as we've said before, these guys are human. Um, I don't expect them to be superhuman every time. Yeah, I think by that point, the Denver Broncos defense was inside Cam Newton's head and outside the other other side. They were just had him completely rattled. I think, honestly, he was looking for a way not to die for that ball. I, I, I could see that argument. Somebody was reaching for it. From some angles, it looks like there's a Denver Broncos lineman like rushing right out of Cam, Cam Newton's blind slide that maybe he noticed him in the periphery and thought he was going to take a colossal hit. Um, but, you know, I keep watching the, the, the video from a ton of different angles, and I think it's pretty clear that he just did not want to dive for that ball. Uh, un- and, again, that's more fuel for the fire, but uh, 
by that point, I can't blame him. He, he at that point he had probably taken I don't know 15 hits, had been never been hit this much in his entire NFL career. Can't blame him for not wanting to dive down onto a dog pile where you know T.J. Ward uh, had a post game quote saying if he dove for that ball, I was going to hit him right in the face. So yeah, he was going to take some punishment down for it. I can't blame and him. T.J. Ward for, would for, do for that, that. T.J. Ward would definitely do something like that. I'm not saying T.J. Ward's dirty, but he's a very aggressive safe. Yeah, he he likes to to hit people. Yeah. So um, and let's just be fair to Cam Newton here. They went 15 and one. They got to the Super Bowl. They crushed the NFC. He won MVP. I hate after a Super Bowl, people talk about the losing team like they're picking number one overall in the upcoming draft. And you get that sense a lot after teams lose. I feel like it gets a little too extreme and people lose sight. It goes back to this if Peyton Manning would have been one in three in the Super Bowl. People have looked at him as a loser. No, he got to four Super Bowls. I mean, it's ridiculous. If you get to the Super Bowl and lose, there are 30 other teams that would die to have that happen. And let's not just... I mean, it was a bad game, a terrible game for Cam Newton on so many levels that we just went through. But let's not... This is, does not mean their season was a failure or a disappointment in any way. By all accounts, they overachieved because everyone pronounced them dead when Kelvin Benjamin got hurt. So, I, I hate when a team loses in the finals of any sport and it instantly turns into just completely destroying them like just with all the rhetoric and stuff like that let's just cam newton's a phenomenal quarterback the carolina panthers are a fantastic team they certainly have the talent to get back a little bit of perspective 30 other teams didn't make the super bowl carolina's one of two that did losing the super bowl isn't the end of the world they had a fantastic season yeah, absolutely. They should not be ashamed. Uh, Cam Newton, like you said, great season and has a great career ahead of him. Those Panthers are in a really good spot. Not a lot of free agents coming up. Kevin Benjamin coming back. Uh, Devin Funches, the the project wide receiver, uh, got a lot of good experience. Uh, if they can keep Cam Newton upright and, and limit those hits, they, they're they going to have a really bright future uh, for, for, for years to come um any last thoughts on, on the actual game of the super bowl no but uh we got to ask the big question bob what commercial which ones you like i i was pretty disappointed with with this batch of commercials i feel i feel like it alternates years i thought last year was pretty good um last year was depressing. first off what was up last year's did have some depressing ones but i thought they had some some funny ones and some cool ones um this year's theme though was like bodily functions. Yeah, like oh, four gosh. or five. There's some nasty ones. Gross ones. Yeah. Um, I didn't like any of those. Honestly, I think my favorite one was the Drake Hotline Bling one. <laughs> that was that good. made me chuckle and laugh. That laughed. was good. Uh, what about you? I like the walk-in closet, the Christopher Walken yeah. one. It was just Christopher Walken <laughs> being Christopher Walken. It was hysterical. I mean, he's sitting there. He has a sock puppet. I mean, it's it's ever, all the ridiculousness that you associate with Christopher Walken. And so I, it was it was great. I, that was my favorite. Yeah. I was I was rolling at that one. It was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, that that was a funny one, and I think Anthony Hopkins one was pretty. That funny was as great well for that. <laughs> he says <laughs> but it's not yeah. selling you anything because it's free. That was good. Right. That was good stuff. <laughs> and then what? What do you think about the halftime show? 
the hat. I mean, it was nothing special. There was, I, honestly, I felt like there were times when Bruno Mars and Beyonce felt like they were superimposed on the field. Like if they, they just looked so out of place. Uh, well, they just it just the whatever they were shooting it with, it just looked like they were like shooting it in front of a green screen. It just looked weird. What if they weren't actually there? It's like they faked the the moon landing. Well, that would be tough to do because a lot of people are in that stadium. Yeah. I don't know. So, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think... Uh, I was mad Coldplay I, teased me with the song Clocks and then didn't play it. Yeah. They did a lot of teasing with Yellow and even uh, Fix You. They didn't play the whole yeah. thing. Uh, I, I thought Coldplay's first set when the guests didn't come was... It was just okay. When the guests came out, there was definitely a palpable energy and that you had a dance-off going on. Um, there was they definitely brought the energy and I, and Bruno Mars and Beyonce as two former Super Bowl performers, uh, two one, two really good ones. They put on really good shows when they played, they knew what to do and they're really great, uh, live, live acts. So Bruno that Mars was, really sweet. was awesome then, when he played that Super Bowl. I was impressed with him yeah. a couple years back. He was fantastic. Yeah. I, I told everyone leading in that Super Bowl, the Seahawks were going to kill Denver and that Bruno Mars was going to crush the halftime show. <laughs> Nobody believed me on either of those. And it was probably one of the best nights of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but and I thought the fix you medley was pretty cool. And then with the, the montage of former Super Bowl performers and that was Chris cool. Martin kind of doing a, a little medley, that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. So I thought, you know, for, for a Super Bowl halftime show, I thought it was really well orchestrated and arranged. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of halftime shows, to be honest with you. Um, it was solid. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't anything too special for me. But I, I'll be. I'll be the first to admit I'm a tough critic when it comes to halftime shows. Truth be told, I honestly just like it when the band comes out and plays four songs. Just play four of your songs. Uh, but I understand why people would like something a little different, a little special, like the dance off and things like that. And uh, you know, halftime shows, I guess, just aren't my thing but <laughs> it's not like a hobby that people like <laughs> hey some people I like halftime shows some hey i bet some people get hardcore with it they're like oh no yeah i mean uh even the commercials they're they're sold in preference towards the halftime show the yes. most popular ones most expensive ones are geared towards being closer to the halftime show because people just watch it for that oh exactly Absolutely. so but all right, man. We have jam-packed a ton about the Super Bowl in this podcast. Is there anything else we possibly didn't touch upon? No, I didn't disappoint. I thought it was a really good game. You know, we talked about a lot about Denver dominating, but it was still a close game. Panthers certainly had a chance to right. win in the fourth quarter. So up until that late fumble by Cam Newton, they were right in there. I mean, it was not Denver did not pull away until like the last two minutes. Yeah. So, all righty, your favorite holiday. National Signing Day. You're a big-time college recruiter fan. I know this because you're my brother, and I know you. So, I will let not. I will let you lead this one off, Bob. Who do you think won National Signing Day? Well, how could it be anyone but Alabama? I mean, yeah. Six years, six years in a row, number one recruiting class. Nick Saban is his legacy as the best the most winning football coach of this century uh, overshadows the fact that he's the best recruiter of this century as well. And obviously those play hand in hand, but uh, you know, heading in national signing day, Alabama was ranked anywhere from seventh to ninth as, as having the top 10 classes. He just cleaned house on signing day, signed a lot of big, t- big names, talent finished right at the finish line to get that number one class. 
Let's look at some of these five-star recruits that Alabama had. Two offensive tackles, both 6'5 and over 300 pounds. The number one inside linebacker, the number two outside linebacker. Then throw in the number the number two ranked running back. Uh, that's Alabama football <laughs> right there. This is pretty there. much <laughs> their entire system. Yeah, so an, another year for, for Nick Saban and crew just cleaning up. Um, yeah, I, yeah it, 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 go ahead. I don't know how ESPN ranked them number two or whoever ranked them number two. ESPN ranked them number two behind Florida State. And I think they said Alabama had like five or seven five-star commits. And, I mean, it depends on who you look at. Rivals has them having five five-star commits. The fact of the matter is I think they had like two more five stars than anyone else. Now, I understand Florida State had a lot of really good four-star commits, but I guess I don't get how you can give Alabama so many five-star guys and not rank them number one. I don't understand that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, again, this is the National Signing Day recruiting rankings are, are so just distorted and warped. Uh, it's really just kind of a general sense of who's getting the good classes. I mean, any difference between the number one ranked class and you know Auburn's number 10th ranked class, I, I'm pretty sure the differences are marginal. Uh, but if you look at this top 10, no real big surprises. These are all big-time programs that are really accustomed to being in the top 10. Clemson is a relative newcomer, but... Hey, they just played in the championship game, so uh, definitely warranted to be there. I'd be so, shocked if Clemson didn't get a top 10 class after playing in a championship game. That's just terrible recruiting if you can't sell that. Yeah, and, you know, Dabo Swinney has recruited really well the, the last few years that he's been there. This is really is nothing new. Uh, what, what about you? Any any big winner on on National Science Day? Well, yeah, I think Michigan kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, not out of nowhere. They were going to finish like with a strong class, but they got Rashawn Gray, the number one overall prospect by most people's accounts. He's from North Carolina, and Clemson was recruiting him really hardcore. Kind of a big coup for Michigan to take a guy out way outside their geography and rip him away from a school that not only is a bordering state, but a very high-profile program that just played the national title game. So I thought that was a really big win for them. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, to, he he's from North Carolina, but he did play f- high school football in New Jersey at a at a Catholic school. Okay. So a little bit more closer to Michigan's geography. I thought that was a big uh, signing for them. Um, according to two four seven, that's the only five star recruit for Michigan. You hear a lot about the hoopla that Jim Harbaugh does for recruiting oh, these camps in the South the national signing day fiesta with tom brady and Derek jeter um if if they didn't get rashawn gray they didn't get a five-star recruit uh it would look kind of foolish so that definitely kind of legitimized uh michigan's recruiting class clemson has the number two ranked player another defensive lineman dexter lawrence imagine if they got both those guys to that'd be kind of crazy if they got both of them (laughs) here's the thing about national signing day it's more of a crapshoot than the draft to me. I mean, you're, you're talking about really young kids. You're talking, I mean, you got to coach them up. I mean, you see it all the time, schools getting top classes, not maybe not the number one class, but top ten classes, and just not materializing for a number of different reasons. Kids, you know, either academically or they just don't cut it in college or they're just not developed properly. And so, you know, these rankings are fun. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done beyond just this year. Now, it's safe to say schools like Alabama, Florida State, Ohio State, now that Harbaugh's at Michigan, the, the Blue Bloods are still probably going to be the Blue Bloods. But I'm kind of curious to see if USC can ever 
develop into the potential we always say they have. They were ranked number eight by rivals. Uh, some of these other classes, I mean, Texas, again, recruiting solid. Will they develop? Tennessee had a fi- number 15 class by rivals. <clears throat> Are they going to take the next step? They went 9-3 and three last year, big bowl win. Uh, are they going to take the next step? And so that, that that's kind of the interesting part to me is some of these teams that aren't always in the top ten, when they get in there, will that translate into success two or three years down the road? Yeah, certainly. It's I mean, again, I, I, I say it's just a general idea of who's going to have the top talent in a couple of years, uh, but those rankings can certainly shift like one through 20. Um, let me speed rush through some of, some of my final thoughts. Uh, LSU, number four ranked class, uh, right there in the top five, depending on your rankings. Les Miles was almost fired a couple months ago, uh, and now he's, you know, he almost had the number one recruiting class, lost out on a couple battles, so that's pretty impressive. Ole Miss is in the top ten. They have uh, some sanctions coming, so that might be the last time we see them in the top ten for a little bit. And then Florida had just another disappointing recruiting class. I mean, 14th overall, according to 247, but no five stars. Um Miami is coming, and they're up and coming. They had another solid recruiting class. Florida could certainly find themselves as being the third best school in Florida uh, really quickly. Yeah, no, the thing is, though, I mean, it's funny. Even even whose five-star and four-star rate is because I've got the site I'm looking at, Rivals, has Florida with one five-star. So uh, you look at all these four different sites, uh, it's very, very different uh, as far as how they evaluate these things. But certainly... Um, Certainly, Florida is an interesting team to watch because they're a team that's been teetering on, okay, they, they're good one year, mediocre the next. They had a good season this year till their quarterback got suspended. So, And even still, with that suspension, they, I think they had a good season given that what way they finished without him. So they're certainly going to be an interesting team to watch. But, uh, but yeah, it'll be uh, – and, and – the point I wanted to make about LSU is you said he had the number one recruiting class. Imagine if they didn't consider firing him. Maybe that's why he lost out on some of those battles. Maybe if they didn't even oh, yeah. float that idea, they're sitting there in the top five instead of you know, number six. Yeah. And then I've one last thought. There's one last five-star recruit on committed. That's Demetrius Robertson, a wide receiver out of Georgia. Uh, just to show you the absurdity of National Signing right. Day and to remind you that these are high school kids we're talking about. The reason he's not committed is because he's waiting to get his SAT scores, hopefully getting 100 points more on his SAT scores so he can take an official visit to Stanford and maybe get a scholarship offer from him. Uh, it's just the fact that you know these are high schoolers, it's it's kind of silly. And the fact that if he, there are other schools circling him like sharks, including Notre Dame, Georgia, and Alabama, he only has two official visits to give if he gets that SAT score uh, with 100 plus points he's definitely taking one for Stanford so that's going to rule out one of those guys it's just kind of absurd it, just thinking about it it really is kind of absurd the amount of pressure placed on these kids I mean we're talking about making a decision about college and turning it into like a sort of NFL draft type thing and you know we're both guilty of looking at it and following it and all that fun stuff and I'm not saying it's a bad thing but I do think like anything it can get a little bit too extreme I mean I hate it when it seemed like there was a string there where every year one kid faked his own signing day just to get on TV. And then when it goes that far, right. it's it's just, come on, man. I mean, we're, we're deciding on a college here. Let's keep things in perspective. So. Yeah, certainly. But, 
Alrighty, Bob. So the uh, BFF alliance that was Phil Jackson and Derek Fisher has come to an early divorce, <laughs> and let's just say there was no prenup. He was signed a five-year, $25 million deal last year, and now he's gone after a year and a half. This is, this is just ridiculous. I mean, when you came into New York, Phil... You hired your protege for the long haul, and now he's gone after a year and a half? I mean, what did they think the Knicks were going to do this year? They were picking fourth overall in the draft. They only have Carmelo Anthony. Porzingis is turning into maybe a solid, like, number two or maybe even a budding star. What did they think was going to happen this year? They're 23-31. and 31. They were first-round fodder. They're the very definition of first-round fodder in the NBA. I don't understand why he's fired because I don't understand what the expectations were for the Knicks now. Did they think they were a top-four team? Because they certainly weren't going in. Yes, absolutely. I, it's confusing. Uh, you know, they, they had a strong start, and they were sitting at 500. They've since gone 1-9, and nine, are now 23-31. and 31. And obviously that's the reason or the catalyst for, for pulling the trigger on firing Derek Fisher I have to imagine that this is probably Phil Jackson feeling some pressure from other people in the Knicks organization that just to produce. I don't. I can't imagine why he would fire his protege, uh, his former player that he he coached to to multiple championships. Why he would fire him after just a year and a half? When, like you said, it, it's an expected long haul rebuild. I, I nobody expected the Knicks to 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 get a top four seed in the East this year. Yeah, and. It's just, it just goes back to the ridiculousness of the NBA sometimes, firing these head coaches after a year and a half or even after a year. What are, your, what are the expectations? That's what I want to know. What are the expectations for some of these teams? Did you really think you were going to be that good? Because newsflash, you, you, you need to take a reality check. And I thought Phil Jackson was the Zen master. Couldn't the criticism that comes his way, couldn't he just like use his Zen magic to make that all better and keep them on the divine path and things like that i don't understand i do not understand it also reinforces that steve kerr's best decision as a head coach came before he was a head coach and choosing golden state over new york yeah and i mean even at that point uh, the warriors weren't at the level they were at now but that seemed like a no-brainer to to choose that i mean well they were a, they were i think a six seed the last two years and a really good six seed in the west and everyone could kind of see that this could be something legitimate like not just they were trending up the Knicks were trending down it, it doesn't take a genius to see which which one you were going to buy but NBA trade deadline approaching Bob who do you think most needs to make a trade uh, I, I got two I think the Chicago Bulls in the east could definitely use a trade we always talk about them they have five big men uh, Noah is obviously hurt but that still leaves them with four quality big men and just a, a lack of true ball handling scorers. Jimmy Butler needs some help. He's got that strained knee. You can't really rely on Derrick Rose. They could always use another scorer. And then out West, Utah Jazz are surprisingly the eighth seed right now, sitting at 500. They have lots of young talent, lots of uh, assets that they can definitely go out and get a player, a, a strong defensive team. They could also use a, another ball handler and score. Would you believe that the Boston Celtics are third in the East right now at 31 and 22? It's kind of crazy. They could. Yeah, can you believe? What? 
Can you believe their best player is five foot nine? Yeah, that's even more surprising. Uh, they could certainly use a trade, and they have a lot of trade assets. They have a lot of draft picks. They have a lot of young guys, and there are some stars that might be available. I wouldn't be surprised if Danny Ainge pulls a blockbuster come next week or so and brings in that play, a player that can help them become more of a threat in the Eastern Conference. Because right now, I think that they're... They're not really the third best team, even though they're the three seed, but I think that if they made a trade and got a legitimate go-to guy, not that not that I'm saying, you know, the guys that they have aren't good, but I think that they're a that they're they don't have a true number one top shelf superstar. If they could somehow swing a deal, bring in a legitimate guy, I think that that is kinda like on the level of bringing Kevin Garnett in to the Celtics in two thousand eight. Uh, that would certainly change the dynamic of the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it definitely would. I wonder who truly is available at the trade deadline. Uh, well, that's just you know, the Celtics, for me, seem to be the only team in contention that actually has assets that they could acquire a guy like that. Most of these contending teams don't have uh, expendable talent, don't have draft picks. They've wasted them all up. So Celtics should certainly be a player if uh, – some of these rumors are to be believed such as Blake Griffin or Dwight Howard out there. I really am expecting a, a more quiet trade deadline with this massive cap but boom that we're going to see in the summer expiring contracts don't really have value right now. Uh, I don't really think uh, a lot of teams, even in the East think that they're in contention. I mean, look at Washington and Charlotte sitting at ninth and 10th. They're right there in it. Same within the West. You have Portland just two games out of that last seed. So a lot of teams think they're in it, and I, I just I think it's going to be a quiet trade deadline. I think Blake Griffin is an interesting question. It's one of those, yeah, it makes sense, but do they have the guts to trade Blake Griffin? And Dwight Howard certainly makes sense on a number of levels, but again, if they do that, Houston signaling a rebuild after just getting to the Western Conference Finals last year. Uh, you know, Boogie Cousins. They already fired their coach. I know, but... Boogie Cousins is an interesting name, but I think Sacramento would be crazy to trade him. Honestly, I think the best trade partner for Boston, unfortunately, is in their own division, the New York Knicks. I think it makes a lot of sense for Carmelo Anthony to go to Boston. Phil Jackson could claim some rebuilding assets since the Knicks are not in a favorable draft position. They've traded some of their picks, so they could re accelerate the rebuilding process and Carmelo Anthony has a contract that you'd want to get rid of in order to free up cap space uh, even more cap space in a booming year to maybe attract one or two superstars combined with some young assets and draft picks to jumpstart the rebuild unfortunately they're in the same division I don't know if the Knicks would want to trade Carmelo to a division rival that would be a very very bold move uh, on both parts really but especially on the Knicks side yes. uh, it's hard to imagine the, the Celtics could finish in the top four and they own an unprotected first round pick from the Brooklyn Nets, which is the third West worst record in the league right now. Uh, the Celtics have done a great job rebuilding and are, are in a, a tremendous position to, to pull the trigger or to just wait it out and, and to add even more young talent. You know what? I've been very hard on the Philadelphia 76ers during the course of this podcast, but the Brooklyn Nets are certainly giving them a run for their money. That could be... I mean, the Brooklyn Nets, I mean, feel like every year you're like, okay, are they going to... No, they somehow don't have their draft pick because they traded him for some guy named Bill. I, I mean, and they didn't protect it. It's just every year they do something dumb like that. I don't understand it. Yeah. No, they, it's, they, they're 
uh, if the sex, the Philadelphia 76ers are the, the most conservative team in the NBA, the, the Brooklyn Nets are the most foolishly aggressive team. The, the way they spent, the way they traded, it's just ne- never worked out. And it's just a, a cautionary tale. Uh, a couple of the teams that are, could be intriguing sellers, Milwaukee Bucks, uh, not having the year that they had last year. Uh, Michael Carter Williams, Greg Monroe have been mentioned in some trade rumors. Uh, we're still waiting for the Denver Nuggets to pull the trigger and, and rebuild. We're, and the, look at the Phoenix Suns. Markeith Morris is just really unhappy there. Uh, they're having a really down year. A lot of young, intriguing talent available. Uh, even Tyson Chandler, he could be on the move as well. Well, I, I think you're right. I think this is going to be the trade deadline of the middle market. I think a lot of those Markeith Morris kind of guys are going to move. I am just very intrigued by Boston just because of the depth of assets they have. If they really wanted to make a blockbuster, they could really entice some team to part ways with a superstar. And if that happens, the East gets a whole lot more interesting because if Boston bubbles up to the true number two and you have a Cleveland-Boston Conference Finals, the rematch of the tug for the trip to the NBA Finals, I mean, that storyline writes itself. It's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, though maybe Kelly Alanik would be one of those assets that's on the move, so it might well, okay. not be as even if he's not there. Cleveland fans are never going to forgive that team, and if they meet in the playoffs a year later, it's going to be a feisty series. Yeah, absolutely. And and the added history of just Celtics versus LeBron has yes. been uh, one of his his most his tormentor heated teams. I mean, they they yeah. tormented him from '08 to '12 all throughout that sort of Garnett. Pearson Allen dynasty and then when they pulled Allen away from the Celtics that was some more drama so yeah there, there's definitely if if it's if Chicago's the sort of little brother rivalry to LeBron the Celtics are LeBron's legitimate tormentor yeah definitely so all right Bob we've uh jam-packed a ton into this podcast but one last quick hit just wanted to get your thoughts on this the NHL's Dennis Wideman was banned 20 games for a hit on the referee. Bob, this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, the the guy went out and hit a referee on the ice. Do you think 20 games is enough? I mean, he, he viciously yeah. hit him. Uh, 20 games seems really small to me. Uh, they suspended him indefinitely after hearing about it. Um, I don't know what the strength is of the NHL Players Union and all that, but 20 games seems really small to me. I, I, I would... If this happened in the NBA or NFL, I would expect a, a season-long suspension probably. Um, it's really surprising it was so short. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty shocked that it's so short. Um, that's a serious offense. I mean, to go out and hit one of your officials, and, and I think if you're the league, you kind of have to stand up for your officiating crew and say, no, this will not be tolerated. Um, I'm surprised he only got 20. 20 is a long suspension, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's long enough for something like that. That's just... I hadn't even heard of that, really. I mean, that's I've been I've racked my brain. I can't think of an instance where something like that has happened in my lifetime of professional sports, of watching professional sports. Yeah, I mean, I, I know NBA and NFL. If you if you touch a ref, oh yeah, uh, you're, as the Cincinnati you're, Bengals found out a few weeks ago. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, all right, guys. So we have packed a ton in this podcast mainly because we had to talk so much about the super bowl it's one of the biggest sporting events of the year so thank you for making it this far and if you did you're awesome come back next week and listen to another one we are going to have more podcasts for you every week 
done, made it one year. We're going to continue. Go for a second victory lap here. We're back talking more sports. Please check us out on FenleyRoadSports.com. Search Fenley Road Sports in iTunes to find our podcast and subscribe to it. Fenley Road Sports on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow us there. And, of course, come back to FenleyRoadSports.com for more blogs and updates throughout the week. We appreciate your support, and we'll talk to you again next week. Until then, have a great one. All right, I'll see you, Chris. Take it easy, Bob.